0: As we look in Malachi again, Lord, I pray that you challenge us and encourage us, both by your character, by your mercy, by your justice as well. Help us to take away the things you want us to, Lord, no more and no less, in Jesus' name. We are in Malachi again, I confess, I uh, it's a passage on judgment, And passages on judgment are ones that they're nice to avoid when you can, you know, that you just don't think about them and you don't teach on them, if you can avoid it. Um, All of us prefer to think about the sunny side of life and deliverance and salvation and sunshine and and happy eternities and, you know... um, That's a big side of life. And frankly, that is a big side of who God is. And you know, as you look in the scriptures and you see how God characterizes himself, he says things in Isaiah like, justice is his strange work. It's it's an element of his character that's essential to who he is, but it's not what he tends to describe himself by. When he describes himself, think of Deuteronomy, even when he gives the law a conditional promise to Israel, he describes himself as, as a God who who excels and who rejoices in loving kindness, faithful love. So this morning we see both his faithful love, but we also see his justice, as Malachi brings that issue up in the beginning of chapter 4. And I would argue, I guess, too, while we don't like, and we're probably not drawn to passages in the scriptures that talk about judgment, judgment on those that God calls the wicked, Uh, It is essential if we're to come to grips with who God really is and what he's really like and what reality in the future really holds for us and for others if these passages are true and if they truly depict God as I believe. I think most of us believe they do. Last week was this great passage that we looked at because it was so encouraging. And you remember last week was... God's response to this little group in Israel, who said, "Gosh, life's tough. We're trying to please God. Doesn't look like it's helping us out," but God then responds to them and says, "Well, gosh, uh, this is the way I feel towards you, and these are the things I'm going to do for you." Very encouraging passage. Even for just this very minor response, all it said was they spoke to one another, and we inferred from that, that they encouraged each other to keep going, even when it was tough to do so. This morning's response, if you remember we said we'd save the other response for this week. This morning's response from God to another group in Israel in total contrast to this. God's response this morning is to those that he calls the wicked. And, and by the way, I'll mention this again later when I'm using the terms the righteous and the unrighteous or the evil and wicked versus believing or whatever, I'm using biblical terms. I'm not using terms that I'm sitting in judgment on someone else that I'm righteous and and they're not. I'm using biblical terms that God is using about one group of people and another. So when we use these, we're not saying that somehow we're elevated, we're exalted, we're better than others. We're using God's terms, His designations, for one kind of person and another kind of person. By the way, you know, we have the temptation in our culture, very much like Malachi's day, in which we look at the short term and we look at levels of success and if we don't feel like we're measuring up to our neighbors or our relatives or our friends or our enemies, that they're living this life as they please and it looks like everything's coming up roses, we have this temptation then to reassess and say, well, maybe I ought to start making shortcuts and maybe I ought to start living life a little differently because, as we said last week, crime pays. This passage in Malachi, though, reminds us that if that's the view of life we have success on the short term, it is indeed short-sighted, and you've got to go to the end of the story to determine if that's really the kind of success you and I want. How does it turn out? In the end, not does it, what does it look like in the short term, or does it appear to be a benefit worth having in the short term? It's the final analysis that we're really after, and that's what Malachi addresses this morning. I'm going to start in Malachi 3 at verses 17 and 18, just so that we can jump in to the first three verses of chapter 4 with the intended contrast. In chapter 3, God's responding to that little group who said, Hey, we're going to encourage each other to keep honoring God, even though the times are tough. God said, They're going to be mine on the day that I prepare my own possession, the apple of my eye. God said, My special treasure, those folks that I consider my jewels, my treasure. And I'm going to spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him, because in Malachi's day there was a bit of confusion. Chapter 4, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. All the arrogant, every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But, For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Going back to verse 18. And the thought of the Jewish group in Malachi's day What gives? What's successful? Is there any difference between the righteous and the unrighteous? Well, verse 18, God said, you're going to distinguish again. It will be clear in the future who the righteous and the unrighteous are. Why? Well, because God says, I'm going to come in judgment. And when I come in judgment, the righteous will be clear as the righteous, and the wicked will be clear as the wicked. There will be absolutely no confusion left. In Malachi's day, just as in our day, sometimes there's confusion. If we're looking at results, sometimes we might say it looks like the unrighteous are the successful ones doing the right thing. They look like the righteous, just like in Malachi's day. God says, well, that'll all be cleared up because I've set a day in which I'm going to come, and I'm going to come in fiery judgment. And my presence in fiery judgment will end all confusion." on who's acceptable to me and who isn't, on who the righteous and who the unrighteous are. He uses this term, burning like a furnace. That God's presence on this day of judgment would be burning like a furnace. I'm going to follow this up a little bit because I think it's important. This issue about God's presence, His coming to the earth on this day of vengeance or wrath, He he uses in terms of fire. The imagery is of this burning oven. Now, <clears throat> this is helpful, and I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons. The first is that if you start looking through the scriptures on depictions of God, fire is one of the most consistent. And we'll look at some passages here in a minute. And the other reason is because of this. Uh, what does fire do? What is the effect of fire on a thing, on anything? And, and this is the deal. Fire reduces a thing to its essential nature. Fire reveals a thing for what it really is. Think about this for just a minute. If we put a torch to this building, anything that's wood in it would burn up. And what looks like it's solid would actually be reduced to ashes because, in fact, it's, it's carbon. It's a series of carbon molecules. And the fire would test those molecules and it'd burn them up and it'd leave ashes. So we would know in the end that that wood that looks substantial it really isn't very substantial. It's a series of carbon particles. So the fire would show the wood as essentially insignificant. Soot and ashes, twigs, hay, stubble, anything along this line you think of, fire comes to it and it says, boy, this is not substantial stuff. Why? Because it's reduced to what scientists call a more, it's more stable state. So rust does the same thing to metal, doesn't it? Rust is slow fire. And it reduces steel components to a more stable substance. Well, that's what fire does to anything that's consumable. On the other hand, think of this. What does fire do to silver or gold or jewels? What does it do to them? doesn't do a thing. That is, if it's pure gold, the fire just shows. You you put the pure gold in. You melt it down. What what do you have? You, You start with pure gold. You end with pure gold. It doesn't diminish it in the least. So on one hand, fire shows wood, hay, and stubble to be inconsequential. Ashes, soot, that's what it really is. But fire also shows precious gems and jewels, like God had said Israel was to him, and precious metals as gems and precious metals, that they really were what they appeared to be. One group of components is not what it appears to be, and the fire proves that. The other are what they appear to be. They're genuine, and the fire simply proves that. Looking at this thing about God's appearance, I'm assuming this is why God says he's like a fire, because he shows things the way they really are. His presence shows things the way they really are. I was looking up in Genesis And I found that the first description of God in the Bible is in Genesis 15. Now, if you think about this, you'll read about God walking in the garden, but it doesn't describe him and it doesn't tell what he looks like. And you'll read about God speaking to Adam and Eve and Cain and Abraham before Genesis 15, but it never describes him. It doesn't say what they saw. Are you with me? doesn't describe him. The first description of God's appearance is Genesis 15, 7. That's the first. So the first occurrence we have, a description of God, is in Genesis 15. And this is the setting. God's come down to make a covenant with his friend Abraham. So he's commanded Abraham to do the things that they did to make a covenant in those days. You go out and you get some animals, some sacrificial animals. You slaughter them. You cut their carcasses in half. And then the parties of the covenant walk between the pieces of the animal and it's as if to say, may God do this to me, may I be destroyed, just like these animals, if I fail to live up to the covenant. That's the picture in Genesis 15. So Abraham goes out and he gets the animals. He cuts the carcasses in half. He lays them out. And then God causes a deep sleep to fall on him. And it's because, actually, this is a one-way covenant. Abraham thinks it's two-way, but it's not. God puts him to sleep because God's making an unconditional covenant. So Abraham doesn't walk between the animal pieces. Only God does. So in Genesis 15, 17, it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, a smoking oven and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. The smoking oven and the flaming torch, that's God. God is walking between the carcass pieces to say, as a testimony given by these pieces, I confirm that I will keep this covenant I'm making with Abraham. And when God shows up and walks between the animal pieces, it says, it's a smoking oven and a flaming torch. And all I'm getting at here is to say, the first time the Bible describes the appearance of God, he's a fire, he's a flame. And he's a smoking oven, and it's almost the same language, almost verbatim, that you get in Malachi 4. First appearance is exactly what Malachi brings up in Malachi 4. If you follow this through, do you remember how God introduces himself to Moses in Exodus 3? Moses sees a burning bush. Moses sees a fire in a bush that isn't consumed, Exodus 3, verse 2. Do you remember God's appearance to Israel As part of the Exodus process, Exodus 13, the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and a pillar of fire by night. God's introduction to the nation of Him, visually, a cloud, we assume a white cloud by day, but a fire, a pillar, or a column of fire by night. That's what Israel sees. When they see God, they see a pillar of fire. It's the same pillar of fire that Preserved Israel when Pharaoh's armies came after them before they could cross the Red Sea it was a column of fire that kept Egypt from Israel when God comes down in Exodus 19 to make a covenant with Israel do you remember the description Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire it's smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace the whole mountain quaked violently Later in Exodus 24, when the giving of the covenant continues, to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Each one of these occurrences, the depiction God gives of himself is as this oven, this intense heat and this flaming fire. In fact, if you remember last week, we looked at Hebrews 12, as an encouragement that, that God gave it parallels Malachi about continuing to do right even when it's difficult to do so. The end of that passage Hebrews 12:29 concludes with this, our God is a consuming fire. God describes himself and he has appeared to man in the past as a fire. And it's this reminder that God is this terrible power if you will before whom Nothing can stand that can't stand the heat of his presence. That God's presence is such <clears throat> that it reduces things to what they really are. It's not just a terrifying thing about a fire as destructive. It's the thought that the fire will show what a thing really is. In Malachi 4, God says, on this day he's appointed when he comes in judgment as this burning, superheated oven, he says that it's going to prove that the wicked in Malachi's day are no more than chaff and stubble. And that in God's presence, while they looked successful in life, God's presence will prove that they really weren't successful. Their lives really weren't lives of substance, but they'll be consumed like chaff in an oven would be. Those who boasted in themselves and lived proud, arrogant lives, those who chose not to honor God in anything they did, are going to be their lives after God appears to them and tries them will be like dust and ashes. The fire of God's presence revealed their lives to be what they were, inconsequential dust and ashes. If in Malachi's day you looked around you and you said it looks like the wicked or the righteous because they prosper, God says it's misleading and it's short-sighted because in this coming day, my presence, my fiery presence, will prove that they really are the wicked and that their lives really were inconsequential. The final analysis will show the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. Now contrast that with verse 2. For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You'll go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Uh, For the wicked, God's fiery presence, it means judgment and destruction. But what does it mean for the righteous? It means a stroll on the beach, means a picnic in the park. If you guys have seen calves, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to see this. This is such a great analogy. You know, you see an old fat cow walking down a trail, you know, swinging one side to the other. It's like, wow. But if you see calves, you know, and they've just suckled or they've just eaten and they're feeling a little full of themselves, literally, you'll see them dancing across the pastures, kicking up their back heels. It's just hilarious. Carefree, fat and sassy, good to go. Well, that's what God says. His appearance, this fiery presence of His coming in this day of wrath for the righteous It's a walk in the park. It's a picnic. It's like this calf skipping about the pasture. Entirely different result from the same appearance. For the wicked, judgment, ash and stubble. For the righteous, warm sunshine on a nice spring day. Couldn't be, the contrast couldn't be any more clear. It's like the light of the sun, you know, on one hand you get too close, it'll burn you up, but on the other, on a nice spring day, it makes the grass grow, the flowers bloom, feels good to you and me. That's the thought here. And isn't it interesting that the same thing, that is the appearance of God in fire, it produces two entirely different results. Destruction for one group, but salvation and and joy really for another, and And think back with me for a minute to the book of Daniel. Uh, There's a story in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 3, where Daniel's not even present. If you read commentators, they're all like, well, where is he? We don't know. But that's beside the point. In Daniel chapter 3, Daniel's Jewish friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they've been constrained to show up there on the plains of Shinar, where old King Nebuchadnezzar's made an idol. And he's commanded that when this crazy music plays, everybody's supposed to bow down and worship his idol. But our faithful friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't do it. They've already committed themselves to honor God. So the old king hears about it, and he calls them a form, and he says, hey guys, there's a problem here. You didn't bow. I'm going to give you a second chance. So when the music plays, when I strike up the band, you guys bow down, we'll call it good. We'll forget that little mistake. But of course they say, hey, King, we don't even need time to consider this. We're not going to bow. We made our minds up a long time ago, come hell or high water, come fire or whatever you do, we're going to remain true to our God. We're going to honor God. Just like the Jews in Malachi's day. We're going to honor God. So our God, He can deliver us, and He might. But even if He doesn't, we're not going to bow. So Nebuchadnezzar, I love this phrase. It says his facial expression was altered. You've seen somebody so mad there, just their face gets confused. That's what his he can't believe these guys aren't doing what he said. He's threatening them with the best thing he's got. In fact, he said, What God can deliver you out of my hand. I've got you, there's the oven. Obey or perish. And so he says, he's so ticked, he says, Heat up the oven seven times hotter than it normally is. And then I love this. It says certain valiant warriors. Valiant warriors. Why, did it, why were they valiant? Well, they got to tie these guys up, and then they've got to go pitch them in this superheated oven. They had to be valiant, because they had to get up close enough to pitch these guys in. So they tie them up, they walk up, and they throw them in the fire. This fire is so hot that these valiant warriors die from the heat that it took to get close enough to throw in our three friends. But what happened to our three friends? Nebuchadnezzar apparently from a safe distance can look into that oven. And what does he see? He said, I see four men. Three were thrown in. I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. The appearance of the fourth is like a son of God's. The valiant men who are opposed to God are consumed by the fire. They're not even in the oven. They just get close enough to be consumed. But what happens to God's men their bonds are consumed. They're freed by the furnace, by the fire and the furnace. And they not only are freed, they're walking about unharmed, untouched, and they're fellowshipping with God. We assume this fourth one, Nebuchadnezzar says, looks like a son of God's, is pre-incarnate Christ. So the fiery furnace for one group is death and destruction, and for the other, it's a walk in the park. And it's fellowship with God and it's freedom. But it's brought about by exactly the same condition. Same condition, two entirely different outcomes. You know that if you talk about terms like the wicked or judgment in our culture, you're certainly perceived as narrow minded, bigoted, judgmental, you know, you name it. That's why I try and be careful when we talk about things like this, that we're using God's terms, not ours. We're not elevating ourselves and demoting others so that somehow we feel better. We're not, as in Isaiah's day, saying we are holier than others. But God talks about judgment. God says he's a God of judgment. He talks about justice. He calls some wicked and some righteous. And so we're only being accurate to do so. And if you remember last week, we talked about the fact that God said when he's acted in judgment in the past, in history, he does so that other generations would know he is a God of justice and he would judge. So we looked at Genesis 18 and 19 last week in which God judged Sodom and Gomorrah and then we looked in 2 Peter 2 and we saw that Peter said, going back to that story, if God did that then, he will do it again. God says throughout history and he's displayed in the past, he's a God of judgment as well as mercy. And by the way, if I forget to say this later, you guys know God's judgment and His mercy are both perfectly displayed when Jesus Christ dies on the cross. God proved when Christ died on the cross that He was a God of judgment because Jesus was being punished for sin, for unrighteousness. God is a God of judgment, of justice because He was willing to pour out His wrath even on His own Son because His Son was taking Our place, receiving the penalty due our sins. God is a God of judgment. But of course, the fact that Christ is present at the cross as our substitute also says God is a God of mercy. He's both. Perfectly so. To me, one of the most glorious and terrifying passages in all the Bible is one you don't hear read very often, but it's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and it brings up exactly this same theme about. God's future coming to the earth in judgment and in mercy. Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church and like the Hebrew Christians, Hebrew addresses, they were suffering. It was costing them something to be a Christian. They were being persecuted. And Paul's talking to them and he's talking to them in, chapter, in the first epistle and the second about reward and the future. And he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, after all, it is just. It is just, it is fair, it is right. For God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief <coughs> excuse me, to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. This is yet future, of course. Paul says when Jesus comes back to the earth, it's like a flaming fire. And this flaming presence of Christ to the second coming to the earth is to deal out just retribution to the wicked and specifically to those who've been persecuting those who honor Christ. But for those who honor Christ, it's a day of glory and deliverance. It's the same occurrence and it's entirely different results depending on which group you're a part of. It's destruction and it's judgment for one group and it's glory and it's deliverance for the other. Same event different outcomes just as this day in 2nd Thessalonians has not occurred Malachi's day of judgment has never occurred either this day of wrath or judgment that Malachi spoke of 2400 years ago has not yet taken place this fiery presence of God on the earth to do justice has not yet occurred We are not going to get into the issues about when things occur, what's the timeline for the future. That's not where we're going this morning. But let me say this. Everyone's life, everyone in this room, and everybody in Malachi's day, and everybody in Paul's day, everybody that's lived is going to face a fiery trial. That is a trial before God's fiery presence. For Christians, this has nothing to do with salvation. Um, It has nothing to do with sin or God's wrath. Do you know that for a Christian, God can never punish a Christian in the sense of judgment? Because if He did, He'd be breaking His own covenant. Because all of God's wrath for sin, for you and I, was poured out on Christ on the cross... Have you ever heard the term double indemnity? You can't be punished twice in our legal circles for the same crime. Well, you see, Jesus bore the penalty for every crime, every sin you and I will ever commit. God never treats us in wrath or judgment for our sin because Jesus has covered that. But we do face a fiery trial. This is talked about. You can look it up later in 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5 at what Paul calls the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ for Christians. Nothing to do with salvation, no wrath, no judgment. But it's this trial where Jesus puts the flame of his presence, his searching eyes, to the quality of our life. And you guys know, on a good day, somebody might look at you and say, man, they're righteous, they're godly, they're cool, they're successful, whatever. And you might know better. And on another day, somebody might look at you and say, what a low life. And you might know, hey, I'm, I'm honoring the Lord in what I'm doing. Well, this day, for you and I, the Bema seed of Christ, this is when all this is cleared up. Because the fire of Christ's presence, it destroys what Paul says are the elements of wood, hay, and stubble in our lives. Things in our life that aren't up to God's standards. And so they're consumed. And, and that's okay. Because what's left are the righteous things, the appropriate things, the appropriate times and ways in which we've honored Christ. And what's left is gold and precious metals and jewels. And, and God is going to reward us for those things. So this isn't a negative in the sense of wrath or judgment. It's a liberating uh, fire, if you will. liberates us from the elements of our past and our history that weren't, weren't up to God's standards, but leaves the things that God wants to reward. You may never be rewarded in this life for godliness. It may never happen. But you will in the future. Now for the unrighteous, there's also a, a time coming of the fiery presence of God in judgment. Now for some, this will literally be a day in their life on the earth. If their life, when Jesus comes back, as Second Thessalonians talks about, or as Malachi 4 talks about, they will be present when the fiery presence of Christ returns to the earth and judges their lives right then. So for some, this day, it's going to be a day in their life, in their lifetime. If it's not, though, it wasn't for the people in Malachi's day. It didn't happen, that day that God said would come. didn't happen. It didn't happen for the people in Paul's lifetime. It may not happen for the people in your lifetime and mine. Hard to say. But it will happen. And for them, if it doesn't happen as a day in their life, as it has not for most people, it'll still happen as uh, Revelation 20 talks about it, the great white throne judgment of Christ, again in Revelation 20. So it'll be a day in which the dead stand before Christ and they're judged for the deeds of their life. For some, they're alive. It's going to be Zechariah 14, Matthew 24 and 25, Revelation 19, when Jesus literally descends to the earth And puts things right. For others, for most, though, it'll be standing before Christ at the great white throne judgment in which the dead are judged. This is just all to say most of us are going to live life like these other folks have, and we won't see this day of judgment. But it doesn't mean the judgment's not coming, it doesn't mean this day of revelation isn't coming, it's still coming so that we can't be short-sighted and say, well, not in my lifetime. Well, that doesn't matter. That day's still coming. That day of revelation by the appearance of Christ will still come. You and I are faced uh, all the time with decisions and temptations, um, whether it's at school, at work, friends, relatives, whatever, whatever your life is, is taken up by, wherever you live and with whomever you live, you'll face temptations to take shortcuts or to do something because it looks like in the short term it's easier. It's easier. Or maybe you could save a few bucks if you cheated on your taxes. You know, Or maybe you don't have a license to drive, but you drive anyway. Or there's a million and one things. I mean, all of us face temptations. And you'll be tempted to say no to your values and your faith in Christ to gain a short-term benefit, what looks like a success to you. Malachi says, don't do it. Don't go there because there's a day coming in which the fire of God's presence will prove the value of your life and your decisions and your activities and what you involved yourself in, what you refrained from. There's still going to be this trial. So even if it's not short term, don't, don't make the mistake. Don't give in to the easy. Don't, don't choose what looks like the successful road when that road's opposed to what God and Christ want for your life. We are to live in light of eternity because the fire will still come even if not in our lifetime. Let me close with a scripture out of a Second Peter Same theme. Pete says about the future, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with the roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening or anticipating the coming of the day of God Because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God is a God of mercy. He delights in loving kindness, but he's also a God of justice. And he says in the end, not only our lives, but the earth we inhabit and the the star, at least some element of the physical creation around us, it's going to be burned up by God in judgment so that He can get rid of what was inadequate and deficient and start over with everything made right. One last quote from Peter Peter said in his first epistle, If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Though God delights in mercy, he's also a God of justice. And if we spurn God's mercy poured out in Christ, Peter says, what's left? See, if it was with this great difficulty, Christ giving his life for you and I, that the righteous are saved. If the unrighteous neglect that, reject that, well, what in the world could be left for them but God's judgment? You remember we're talking about living counterculture lives and I believe in this passage in Malachi we're just remembered that to live lives contrary to the flow of the culture around us we have to live life in light of we have to make decisions in light of a future day which is going to reveal the quality of our life through fire. You and I love God. You remember the initial deficiency Malachi relates to Israel? You and I love God when we make decisions in our life based on the reality of God testing our lives by fire. It doesn't always look like that. But for you and I, we display faith and we display love for God when we say, Lord, we know you're true to your word. We know there's a day of testing and fire to come, and we choose to honor and trust you, even if in the short term it doesn't look beneficial, it doesn't look like it's successful for us, We know you're true to your word. We know you're a God of justice and mercy. And so we're making decisions in our life in light of that, counting on you and counting on you to make it right in the end. That's how we love and honor God today. Let's pray. Lord, most of us, like our ancestors, will be born into this world, will live lives, and will die not seeing this day of revelation in which you return to the earth to settle matters and to make them right. Lord, nevertheless, we know that for each one of us, I love those verses about you keep our tears in a bottle and when we do write, Lord, you write it down and record it so it can be revealed in eternity. Father, we thank you that to be heirs of salvation is as easy as simply saying yes to the offer you've made in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, you could display no greater love than you did by offering up your own Son in judgment so that we could receive your mercy. And Lord, I pray that you help each one of us today and this week to make decisions in light of eternity. Lord, decisions that honor what you did for us in giving us your Son decisions that reflect the reality that we will see you one day face to face and you'll try our lives lord and i pray for each one of us here that those decisions we make are ones that we will be glad of on that day that you reveal our lives as they really were lord this can be a a fearful thing on one hand but it can also be exhilarating to know that acts of faithfulness or kindness here may never be seen, may never be recognized, may never produce the kind of success that we value here. But Lord, they will not be unnoticed when we stand before you. We thank you for that, Lord. Thanks again, in Jesus' name, amen.